All right, thank you, worship team, tech team, for getting us started here today. Well, good morning, everybody. Yeah, you can. Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, as always, it is my privilege to be here with you and pleasure. I love being a part of this church, so it is such a joy week after week to be with you. Um, and those of you who came out to the workday yesterday, I want to just give my personal thanks. Thanks for coming out and, and participating in, a, in that way to help contribute to the church family. Um, I was out of town, that's why I wasn't here, but... Uh, but it, it's really fun to see everybody out there uh, working and just loving this, uh, this church family and so much that you want to come out and help spruce up the buildings. That's always kind of cool to see. So thanks for that. Uh, this morning, as you walked in, you may have noticed on the doors, if you did not, I'll tell you now, but it said, attention parents, today's sermon is PG-13. So I, the reason we said that, this is our way of saying, we just want to warn you as parents, we're going to bring up some topics that we want you to know ahead of time so that you're prepared um, and you're not driving home and say, with having a conversation you weren't wanting to have. So that's just our little warning on that. And uh, we are, if you are a guest with us, welcome to our PG-13 morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, we are uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 6 here today, and we're in a series called Dear Church. And uh, this morning, this sermon is going to be a little different than some of the others, or, or a typical one, in that I kind of want to have today more of a conversation. And it's an organized conversation, but this is one where I don't want to give the sense that we are preaching at you, pointing a finger and saying how everything, all of you need to change and we need to do something different. That's not the posture we want to have. And when we look at a, a section like this, this is um, a counter-cultural section in scripture. This is not the, uh, the trend that we have in our day and age. And it was counter-culture in the time of Paul. So when he's addressing it, this also gives me great hope to know like, hey, what we're dealing with now is nothing new. The world we live in is, is, is as broken as it was 2,000 years ago. And apart from Christ, there's, there's hurt and there's brokenness and there's a lot of things that Jesus wants to speak into and bring healing. And that's the hope and the goal of why Paul's even writing this. And so that's what we're going to look at here today. There are some times when you have sermons that, that when someone says, hey, are you ready for Sunday? Are you excited? You're like, oh yeah, I can't wait. And, and then there's sometimes when you say, I'm excited, but I feel like I shouldn't be excited to say I'm ready for this sermon. I'm, I, I want to share it. But this is one of those. Uh, that I, I think it's something we need to talk about. Uh, but it's one that I do so with joy and also with, I guess, this the sense of, well, here it goes. Let's talk about it. But it's important whenever we come to these issues that we listen all the way through. <laughs> and that our goal is that our lives are defined by Christ and who, who, what, who, what he says about us and what he speaks into our lives. And so that's the heart of this passage that we're going through. So today let's begin the conversation. So here it goes. That's the creative intro. That's where, you know, that's the point where we tell you a funny story. All that's done, we're jumping right in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this comes off of last week when we looked at, Paul was dealing with, with some sin in the church and says one of the issues in chapter 5 where he said is, it's important that when we are a community of people who are representing the character of God, that we're fully putting that character on display. The goal for us is that when people look at our lives, that they're not confused and say, well, why, why are you 
living the same way as everybody else? Why, why in the church does it seem that there's nothing different about you? And Paul says, no, it's very important that within those who identify as Christ, that they see Christ. They see Christ-like living and behavior. So he addresses that last week. Now, the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he then starts talking about lawsuits, which sounds like, a, okay, where are you going from there? How do we get from that to lawsuits? And really what Paul is dealing with, the first uh, several verses of chapter 6, is he talks about how, uh, continues the conversation, how we act with one another is very important. How we love one another and how we're able to speak into each other's lives and, and, and sacrifice for the kingdom and put on display the beauty and the character and the reconciliation and, and all of these things that are in Christ among our community really matters. So he starts off by saying, hey, you guys are taking each other to court. You're allowing, uh, it, you're, you have these disputes that you can't even solve among each other. And, and this doesn't look, what is this saying about the community of Christians? And, and many of us have probably experienced turmoil within the Christian family of faith. Some in, in, in churches, we've seen churches where you, sometimes you sit there. I've been in meetings in churches in the past where I just sat there and I thought, this is, I, how is this anything like Christ-like behavior? I was in a meeting once where they, one person suggested we prayed before the meeting and they said, no, you're just trying to manipulate us. We're not going to pray. And I just thought, okay, here we go. So, so, but I wish that was like the one time that ever happened in the history of church and it isn't. Because we're broken people, and at the end of the day, we, when we start fighting for what we want, and we, we start putting our preferences, and our power, and our positions, and all these things, and say, as long as I'm happy, that's what matters. And Paul's saying to the church in Corinth, hey, how about now in Christ, we start saying, I am willing to give up of myself for another. I am willing to, as Christ laid down his life for me, I will lay down my life for another. In fact, to the very point, where he says here in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this um, in verse 7, it's already a defeat for you if you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? What? <laughs> Why not rather give up of something that you hold so dear just for the sake, for, for the sake of Christ? Why don't you give that up? It reflects what Paul writes in Philippians chapter three where he says, I wanna share in the sufferings of Christ. He says, I wanna know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I wanna actually experience this power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. I wanna share in his sufferings. And I think in the church, we often don't wanna share in the sufferings of Christ. We don't wanna identify with that, the hard part of Christianity. We wanna celebrate and only share in the good parts. And Paul says that's an incomplete view of this life of Christ. If Jesus was willing to give up his very life for the people he loves, would we be willing to give up the parts of ourselves for others? And so that's how he starts off this section. Now you're saying, hey, this isn't PG-13. I like this stuff. And then he gets into chapter, or verse 9. And in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the earth? In other words, hey, if you're not right in the eyes of God, you have no, you have no part in the kingdom of God. Did I say inherit the earth? I said inherit the kingdom of God. He says, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers 
nor those practicing homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Remember when I said this will be counterculture? <laughs> These are verses that when I look at, I think, okay, I don't like all of the things in here. Some of them are fine. Some of them are very easy. But there's a couple in here when we break them down and try to understand them, they don't fit. And the truth is, when we look at this list before we go any further and you start looking around and say, I wonder who's offended, you should be because you are one of these. We are all sinners in need of a savior. And Paul has a pretty extensive list here, but we are going to dive a little bit deeper on the first few sins because I want us to understand it. And that's this idea of sexual morality because that actually is the theme for the rest of this chapter is sexual morality and immorality. But before we even get to that, I want to just remind you of a few things. When we're reading through scripture, I have a slide on here that has four questions that when we're reading a whole chapter or a verse or anything, we want to ask these kind of questions. When we read in scripture, we want to ask the first question is, well, what does this tell us about who, who is God? What do we learn about God? And, 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 and so we always want to go in the whole of Scripture. What does the, the writers of Scripture and Bible tell us who God is? And we find that God is this just God, that he hates injustice, and he's a holy God, and, and he hates sin, and a holy God and sin can't co-mix. We find that God is also a very loving God. He's incredibly gracious. He's incredibly patient. He's a God who pursues those who are in sin. He's a God who loves those who are unlovable. And so we learn about when we go through scripture, we say, okay, that's who our God is. And the next question we ask, well, well what has he done? What do we learn about him? And in this case, we're gonna, we learn that, okay, he sent Jesus, his son, because we are broken, because the world is fallen because of sin and things are not as they should be. I love how G.K. Chesterton over 100 years ago said one of the greatest evidences for the doctrine of Christianity is how broken our world is. Said he proves the church right in that very basic doctrine. And I think everyone inside and outside of the family of faith could agree that things don't seem the way they should be. And so we ask, so then what has God done for that? And we see that he has sent Jesus to to bring hope and healing and restoration. The very story of scripture beginning in Genesis chapter three is we're fallen and now he's restoring and he's, he's giving us breadcrumbs to point to a day when he's going to make all things new. The next question we wanna ask is, well, who are we now because of what he has done? Who are we? And Paul starts the letter of 1 Corinthians and he talks about that over and over again. This is who you are. You are in Christ. You are in his grip. You cannot be taken away. He is hold you blameless to the end. This is who you are. Your identity is really, really, really important that we always go back to that. And remember, wait, because of what Christ has done, who am I now? I'm forgiven, I'm, in, I'm a child of God, I'm in Christ, I have the Holy Spirit living and empowering me. This is who I am. That's my identity. And any identity that starts other than that is incomplete identity. It's, a fallen, it's not the right, correct view of who we are. So these first three questions are the imperatives of Scripture. These are things that are true. And then this next one, or, or the, the indicatives, the next one is the imperative. Now how should we respond? Because of what God has done, and because of who he says we are now, based on what he has done, how do we respond to this? 
And and the reason I give you those questions is because we're going to see those pop up in these verses. And this is the theme throughout the book. We need to keep going back because there's a tendency in the church. And when I first became a Christian, I often had people teach me from only the last question. What now should you do? You became a Christian, so now what should you do? You should take all that music you're listening to, Ryan, and you need to get rid of all of it. That was one of the first things I heard. And I was like, seriously, even poison? (laughs) They thank God at the beginning of every one of their albums. I'm pretty sure they're Christian. But yeah, they said, no, you can't listen to any of that anymore. Okay. And and you know those movies that you go to, you can't go to any of those anymore. You know, you probably need to be careful of the friends you're hanging out with. You need to stop hanging out with certain friends. And all of a sudden, it was all about how, what I should do. And all of that missed those first few questions. Because it, and then it led to the incorrect living. Because my life was based on my transaction with God. If I can do enough of the things that I'm supposed to do, then I'm going to be good with God. And I missed out on the whole world that he was trying to reach for a season. And so we don't want to start with the last question. We need to understand the others. And so Paul, to this point, has been dealing with the other questions, reminding us of who we are and what God has done in Christ and our identity that's in him. And he's in a little bit of the now how do we respond section. But he keeps trickling in the other parts as well. So he gets into this section now where he says, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit, uh, inherit the kingdom of God. Or those, and uh, unrighteous is the word for those who don't have a right relationship with God. We have a right relationship with God because of what Christ has done. And then he goes and he lists a, se- several sins. Now, I want to take a moment. And I want to just deal with the first part there. And I want to kind of double click on that and talk about sexual morality for a moment. Because he uses a few words Some of your Bibles may have translated that first word as fornicators. Um, Essentially, this is a word in scripture called porneia. It is where we get the modern word pornography. The biblical understanding of this word is sexual intimacy outside of the context of a married man and woman. You will not find that written on the wall of our city hall. You're not going to find that preached in our our schools. In fact, you're going to find more and more people saying, Ryan, you can't even teach that. There's been attempts in our own state to make that so I could now be going to jail for saying what I just said. Now, in the church, we often just jump to the last part of that. And I want to address both parts. We jump to the part where I said, oh, between a married man and woman, and we stay there and we say, yeah, this is what we believe. But I don't want us to deal with that yet before we deal with the first part. Outside of the context of marriage. (laughs) I thought it would get quiet. That's good. So, (laughs) this is dealing with heterosexuals too. And I know some of you in here today would say, oh no, what a bad day to come. (laughs) Because some of you are here and you've been living together for a long time. And you love Jesus, and there's that part of your life that you haven't entered into a covenant with, of marriage with one another. I know we have some of our young adults, single young adults, who wrestle with this. I've talked with some. I've talked with some who've said, Ryan, if I try to hold to this biblical standard of morality, my relationships 
end every time because I can't seem to find a guy who agrees with me. And when we get to a certain point in our relationship, when this comes up and I say, I have a different view, every time that relationship ends and, and it gets very difficult. And I'm not just talking about our single young adults. We have single adults who've been single for a long time, maybe who are widowed, maybe who are divorced. It's difficult truth. If I could change it, I would change it. This is one thing in scripture I'd say, God, how about we do something different with this? But this is a biblical view that God gives from the very, very beginning in Genesis chapter two. Oh, and by the way, this also refers to pornography, which statistically means even in this room, a lot of you now stand guilty. Jesus would say, if you lust after another person other than your spouse, you're also guilty. How many of us now <laughs> could say, oh yeah, I'm good. And so Paul starts off and he addresses the first few verse, or sins that he mentions. And that first verse are all about sexual morality and how that is a broken part of our existence right now. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the design is that male and female will come together in this sacred unit. It says the two become one. So it's more than just this physical intimacy that happens, but there's this intermingling of the soul. There's a spiritual thing that happens. And this is the, the teaching throughout all of Scripture. God's perfect view of sexuality is in one partner for your whole life. Super old-fashioned. Super high ideal. Some of you say, Ryan, that's such a high ideal. Really? Yeah, you know what? Most of these biblical teachings are very high ideals because they point us to a holy God. A holy God in whom none of us will ever fully attain to the holiness except for what Christ has done in our lives. But this is the biblical teaching and I don't have time to show you every single verse in scripture but sexuality is designed for in the context of marriage. Now, you look at, we look at this and we can see one little part of this is why. I believe that if every single human in the existence of humanity have lived by the biblical standards and, and, and existed within marriage and our sexuality was in the context of marriage as God has designed it, we would have done away with a whole lot of issues in our world. We wouldn't even have a need for the Me Too movement if people live by these biblical standards. Now, marriage is not the only cure for that, by the way. There's plenty of people who are married and do not have a biblical idea of sex. But there are still domineering relationships where people are manipulating and using that as a transaction, and it's nothing of that loving relationship that God shows us within this. Sex is, is this beautiful thing that involves sacrifice and involves giving of oneself and being willing to lay down your life for that person and serve them, not so you can gain, but because of your great love. And if in, in men, if we had that kind of love for our spouses and our marriages, I think we would see, and, and it wasn't about, okay, what can we get out of this? We would probably more, be more fulfilled than we could ever handle. And st <laughs> Try it. <laughs> you know, on our teaching team, we have a mix of married and unmarried and male and female, and we discuss these scriptures together. 
And uh, one of our young female adults, she was saying that young ladies, she, she was kind of pleading as we we're going through this and saying, young women, they need to hear this truth over and over again. They need to know that giving of themselves to another person is not, that's not love. And we say that all the time. But it's so far from the biblical view of love. It's so far from this design that God has. And, and, and it's so much of, of this wanting to be accepted and wanting to be embraced by somebody. I understand it's very difficult. And I understand, it as, as I've said with some of the young adults who said, I just can't have a relationship last if I don't give myself sexually to someone. But that's broken. That's not the way it's meant to be. And our desire for you is that you find a real man who's willing to wait for you and who's going to love you, not because he gets that, but because he loves you and he will sacrifice for you and he will wait for you and he's going to be patient for you. And he's got, that's the kind of man we want you to have. And young men, young or old, single men, that's the kind of man that Christ would be if he ever got married. That's the kind of man he wants you to be. To not take and take and take for your own. In the church, we are also responsible for the issues of the Me Too movement because we haven't learned to value others enough. And we need to take responsibility. There's this broken view of sexuality and we haven't done it much better. Even the amount of Christian men, and I know pornography is a real struggle and it's difficult and it's, it's one of those things that's an addiction that holds the hearts of many, many of the guys in this room and some of the women in this room. But that is, those types of things lead to that objectifying and treating women as just something for our transaction. And that's so unbiblical. That's why the world's so broken. And when we live out these biblical ideals, they're high ideals, they're, they're difficult, but they bring life. They speak life into others. They don't take, they give. That's what Paul is trying to get us to and say all along in this chapter, this whole book is, hey, when we let Christ live in us and, and our lives are in him and we live out that identity, this is life-giving, and sometimes we take it the opposite way and say, just conform to our standards and our rules, but there's, that will never change your life. We don't change because there's lists of rules. We change when we say, we want the life of Christ to be on display in us, and we want others to see the beauty of this life of Christ in our relationships. So when we talk about sexuality, biblical sexuality, we, we need to know that sexuality is part of our plan for who we are but it is not the pinnacle of who you are. I've heard many people say, Sex sexuality is what makes us human. That is a very terrible, terrible biological understanding of humanity and a spiritual understanding of humanity. By saying that, we are saying Jesus was not fully human because he never expressed this in his own life. We are saying that we are if we can have sex, we become human. Well, that sucks for every single person in this room, doesn't it? That is a terrible view of humanity. That is so wrong. What about those who wish they could and they're even in marriage, but for physical reasons and health reasons, they can't. Are they less than human? Jeff Vanderstelt says this, if we see ourselves defined by our sexual desires or our sexual attractions or our sexual identity, this will take precedent in our lives. 
And so if you think your sexuality is good, you will become prideful. If you think it's a pinnacle of who you are, oh, I'm a married heterosexual male, that's who I am. If that's your whole identity, you become prideful in that. And if you think your sexuality is bad, you live your life full of shame. So sexuality is important, but it's not the most important thing, and it's not what defines who you are. Christ defines who you are. It's part of the story, but it's not your whole story. And some of your stories, I regret to say, biblically may be that you're going to live a life of celibacy. And I feel hypocritical saying that because I'm married. It's easier for me to say that. I know that. But I know some of you, maybe that's the call that God has for your life. Chapter 7 next week deals with all of that. That's difficult. So sexuality is part of it, but it's not the whole story. What fulfills us in life is not the ability to have sex or not. It's the Holy Spirit in our lives. As Christians, we now have a new identity. We now want to find our fulfillment. And this goes beyond sexuality. Your fulfillment is not in your ability to buy stuff. Some of you, you say, hey, I'm pretty good on the sexual thing, but your identity is in your power. It's in your money. You're unwilling to submit that part of your life to Christ. You're unwilling to submit your anger to Christ. You're unwilling to submit your substance abuses to Christ. So before you start getting self-righteous and say, I don't mind being here today because this isn't my issue, you have your issue. We all do. And the issue is we want to submit that and find our fulfillment in Christ and, and the Holy Spirit living in us and not in any other thing. So now let me address just, and by the way, this truth can be very scary for those of you who are not yet married or who maybe never will be, because you think, that sounds really lonely. This truth is very scary for those of you who are in the LGBT community or have friends in that community. And I want to address that for a moment here. I take no joy in believing this part of the Bible. I don't. I think the first real uh, friend I knew from the LGBT community was when I was uh, in college, and I was working in a restaurant, and the bartender's name was Rodney, and I hung out with Rodney at the end of the shifts. He would often give me a, a, a free, alcoholic-free drink every, at the end of the day. I was into these pina coladas for some reason with no alcohol in it. I was like 19, and, and he would make them for me, and we'd sit there and talk at the end of the shift, and I got to know Rodney and, and got to know a little bit more of who he was, and then one day he didn't show up for work, and it turned out that that weekend, he was attacked and beaten because of his sexuality, and he died. And it was the first time I ever saw this hatred towards somebody because of that. And, and, and I probably, in, in my past, had joked along these ways and, and you know, said things that were hurtful and not, even not even meaning to, and now I see it in reality. Later on, I was working in another restaurant, and I became friends with one of the waiters who also was from the gay community. We became great friends. Often after work, we'd hang out, got to know each other. He knew very well where I stood biblically. We talked about the Bible and faith. We never really talked about, hey, what I think it planned for God's plan for his life for that was, it was, hey, I want you to know Jesus. And we talked all the time. I still have in my wedding registry, I have his name signed there when he came and uh, and came to our wedding and gave us a wedding gift and was there. And I was there with Dale that day when he got his test back for his AIDS test. 
And I remember looking in his eyes like, oh, what was the result? And he kind of looked at me like, oh, you naive little kid. <laughs> and he just said, what else could it be? He's like, I'm not surprised. That was the beginning of my life of, for some reason, God pl- placing people from the LGBT community into my life. And, and I've had students in my youth groups, and there's people in this church who've talked with me about the, these things. And I know some of you here are in, either in those relationships or you are living with same-sex attraction. And I think the church historically has not done a very good job of loving you, understanding you walking with you. And I believe we need to walk this balance between grace and truth. The truth of of God, I believe, is truth. And I don't think it can change because culture changes. That's just not the way truth works. But there's this really messy balance that we walk with grace. and, and, And I understand that Jesus would, if you were here right now, would want to sit down with you and just let you know how much he loves you as his child. And how much he wants you to have a fullness of a relationship with him. And if this is you here this morning, and you are actively involved in a, relation, LGB, uh, a gay or lesbian relationship, or a- any part of that community, I want to just tell you, please keep coming. I hope you're going to find a bunch of people here who love you, and who are going to uh, hang out with you, invite you over for dinner, and become friends with you. And be a part of your life. And we're going to, Trust that the Holy Spirit of God is going to keep pointing you to Jesus and, and, and we're going to be really patient in this. Just as we will with many of you who are same or who are in, uh, living together in a heterosexual relationship. We're going to be patient with you. But we're not going to change our standard of what we think is right and wrong. We want you to keep coming. We want you to let the Holy Spirit of God work in your life. And we do believe that there's something different. And, and, but I know from a heterosexual couple, it's a little easier because there's always that potential to have that relationship aligned biblically by making a covenant of marriage. In a same-sex couple, that biblically is never available. So that seems really unfair. To which I would just say this is one of those opportunities which doesn't seem like a great opportunity, but it's one of those where you may have this opportunity to suffer for Christ. There's wonderful, wonderful stories of people from the LGBT community who've committed to celibacy who've had Christ change and transform their lives and they've given up this, this physical part of their lives and they've lived as followers of Jesus, many of whom still live with same-sex attraction. Let's, let's not pretend that you can just pray that away and it will take two weeks and it's done. In some cases it's happened, but in most cases it never does. There are married couples when one of them, and heterosexual married couples when one has same-sex attraction and it's just been a part of their marriage. But there, there's this pray, prayer together and this open communication that exists within these marriages that there's been some really good health. But for most in the LGBT community who have same-sex attraction, what the biblical call is to call them to a life of celibacy. And that's hard. I hate to say that to friends of mine. A few months ago, Sarah and I went to a party, and there's a few professors there from, a, from a SDSU, and I met one and got to know him, and he said, oh, let me introduce you to, uh, he and I were talking, and, and, and then he said, oh, I want to introduce you to my husband. His husband came over and went, okay, and, and we were talking and talked about his job, and then after about 
20 minutes, he goes, so what do you do for work? And I just said, cue the crickets. <laughs> I told him I'm a pastor and the cool thing was is they didn't even, they must not know much about pastors, but <laughs> no. We just kept talking and ended up talking the whole night and, and getting to know him a little bit more. And, but I think the whole time I, I look at him and I got to know them and think, man, that's a really hard truth to say, yeah, the, I, I don't think biblically that you're living according to God's standards. I don't. But I think God loves you a lot. I think he has a plan for you. I'd love for you to show up at our church someday. I hope everyone there would love you and accept you. It's not an easy issue. And it's not one that we can go out and say, hey, yeah, this is what we believe. Woo. Don't start there. <laughs> just like if you came to me and said, Ryan, I'm an alcoholic, I'm not going to just hammer you about that every single day. You know what I'm going to say is, well, what does Christ mean to you in that alcoholism? How do you see the grace of God as bigger and bigger and bigger in your life every time you struggle with that? And I, just one more thing on this is just so you know, I love the way Tim Keller said it. He said, your being gay will not send you to hell any more so than my being straight will send me to heaven. He heaven and hell is about the, so the salvation given to us by Jesus, not by what you have done or will do. It's by what Christ has done in your life. And there's plenty of heterosexuals who live in gross sin day after day after day and don't really care. And yet we're really good at pointing out certain sins. Jesus wants to redeem all of it. He wants to redeem all of it. I have not gotten to any of this sermon here today. <laughs> but I want to... Uh, we have to get to verse 11. We have to get to verse 11 because this is so important. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, this means be, you were made holy, and you were justified, meaning you were made right in the eyes of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And these are all, the, the Greek verbs here are ongoing. You are being washed. You are being sanctified. You are being justified. So Paul just lists this great list of sins, including sexual sins, and then he throws in, by the way, like I said, thieves. So if you have any dishonest business dealings, swindlers, revilers. I love this definition of that. It's someone who's like harshly critical of other people and demeaning and all of this. I, I've never seen that in the church, but other, the other ones maybe. See, he basically lists all these things and says, yeah, guess what? If this is your identity, what you do, you are all in trouble. Because even in Christ, we often live out our lives in the flesh and at any given moment, you may be defined by one of these things if we're not careful. It happens in marriage arguments all the time, right? Well, you're just whatever. <laughs> and we put a label on someone based on actions, based on what you do. And if that is where identity lies in our actions, we are all unrighteous before God. 
But in Christ, you were washed, you were justified, and you were sanctified. You were made, being made holy because of what Christ has done. Yes, I do believe that applies to heterosexual and homosexual community. I believe that in Christ you can be saved. I believe that he wants to sanctify and work out that part of your life. And I don't think it's an easy road. And I don't pretend to think it's an easy road. And there's plenty of people too who are struggling with their gender identity. We had that conversation even on our teaching team where someone, one of the friends had transitioned and it was really cool to hear how gracious and how much this person was speaking life into the other one and not saying, hey, you know, you probably messed up here. But saying, hey, you know what? Jesus is a God who heals brokenness and there's so many, and, and the the truth is there's brokenness in relationships and all kinds of things that need healing. And if we tend to start with one behavior instead of saying, no, in Christ, you can have a fullness of life. And there's a lot of messy situations that pop up when we live this out. I get it. I get it. In fact, I want to recommend to you a book called Messy Grace, if you have not read it. It's written by a guy named Caleb Kaltenball, who is a Christian who was raised uh, by his parents, who was a same-sex couple, lesbian parents, who disowned him basically when he became a Christian and had restoration in his life later with his uh, mom and, and her partner. And, but he talks about this balance between grace and truth, and he said it's just messy. But there is a way you can be loving and still believe in truth. And so as we end here, I want to invite the worship team up and admit I didn't get to the rest of the sermon and the rest of the sermon's awesome. Um, so we'll see how we do this for next week, I guess. <laughs> Thank you, but I am washed by Jesus, so it's okay if we didn't get to it. Thank you. As we end our time here, I think it's just appropriate that we turn our focus back to Christ and we're reminded of those truths. And I want to tell you that if you are here and you are living with same-sex attraction and you want someone to talk with, I want to invite you, whether you use a connect card or email, we want to invite you to have that conversation. Some of you boldly have already done that with me or with others. And I'm not going to put you on a therapy plan. I just want to speak with you and, or others in this room. Some of the leadership would love to speak with you and love you and walk with you in that journey. Because here's the thing, if we're calling our, our heterosexual single adults to a life of celibacy, and if we're calling our same-sex attracted adults to a life of celibacy, then the church better be there to provide intimacy in other ways. Amen. We better be there to love people and to be friends. Yeah. Better have an open seat at your table on holidays when you have someone to go to and others don't. So we need to invite the single people into our lives and the same-sex couples into our lives and say, we're going to provide those things you, you, that we say biblically we don't think make sense. So we want to be that church. And we can be that when our identity is in Jesus and what he has done, because I think that's exactly what he would do, and that's exactly what he did. And that's what we're called to. So let's pray, and would you stand with me as we pray? And this is just as a symbol of unity together. I'm just saying, God, this is hard. 
We don't want to compromise what your word says. But we want to understand your grace too. So help us with this. So let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much that you never told us to figure out all the answers. I thank you so much that you never asked us to sort through everything as you would, as being a perfect, loving creator, God. Lord, but you've called us into this life with you and this life with Christ in us. And and so, God, I, I just pray now in this room that you would bring life. Lord, that you would help us to live out that life in, in, in our relationships, our sexual relationships. God, would you help us in our marriages to love each other the way you would and not through manipulation or power or control, but through self-sacrificing care and love and laying down our lives for each other. And God, would you give our single adults the courage to lay down that area of their lives for you and for others? And would you give the courage to those in the LGBT community who are among us who are wrestling with this, would you give them the courage to keep walking with you and, and having you point them to the cross and, and work with them? And Lord, would you give us courage to walk beside every single person and bring love and grace and truth in a way that you would, Lord? And so God, we just pray in this place. Some of us have come in here with heavy burdens. Some maybe have new burdens. But God, remind us that in you, these burdens are nothing because they're light because we hand them to you. And so God, would you bring life to this place now? And as we leave, would you help us be people who bring life everywhere we go? Receive our praise now, Lord. In Jesus' name.